Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Heideguai on the Edge of the World, Frank Ophonia, The Dark Horse, My Big Fat Greek Wedding 2, Sleeping Giant, and more. Live at the E-Bar this week, see Proto-Martyr, Duchess Says, and Start Something on May 3rd. DJ Guri Guri's Latin Fiesta is in effect on May 4th. And a Pride edition of the Fierce DJ Night takes place May 5th. The Bookshelf is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. More information about The Bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and to order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit the newly designed bookshelf.ca. pleasure a well-hidden treasure pizza chocadero we serve delicious gourmet pizza with daily made dough homemade sauce and fresh toppings cut by hand ask us for our two one special pizza chocadero open weekdays till nine weekends until 10 located at seven municipal north of college in edinburgh proud to be an independent family-owned business call 519-829-2444 or visit chocadero.ca Creative Control with Bish
Bob Mayer is an award-winning music critic who currently resides in Memphis, Tennessee. He has written for the Commercial Appeal, Mojo, and the Chicago Reader, among others, and he has composed essays and liner notes for several album reissues, including the Grammy award-winning Big Star box set, Keep an Eye on the Sky. His new book presents an illuminating and often harrowing look at one of the greatest American rock and roll bands of all time. It's called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. It's out now via Duck Capo Press, and here to discuss it further is Bob Mayer. Uh, hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Now, where, where in the world are you today? I am in uh, the Commercial Appeal offices in Memphis, Tennessee. We are a uh, Gannett-owned newspaper here in the heart of the Bluff City, and, uh, and uh, where I am the music critic, uh, chief music critic and music writer, I guess you would say. Obviously, music being a big, uh, more than just an arts beat here in Memphis. It's part of our tourism and civic identity and uh, economy and everything else. Yeah, Memphis is obviously has a long history of amazing music. Do you, do you feel like the contemporary scene is as vital as it's ever been? Uh, are there things about it that excite you? Very much so. I think there's always been, you know, Memphis has had its ups and downs uh, in the last, say, 30, 40 years. But uh, as a music city, uh, certainly the glory days were in the uh, 50s and 60s and parts of the 70s. But there's always been a really interesting strain of music coming out of here, um, you know, and, and it continues to be the case here today. And how long have you lived in Memphis? It will be 10 years uh, this fall. Um, prior to that, I was in Chicago and Seattle, although mostly I grew up on the West Coast in Los Angeles. And so uh, so moving to Memphis was a bit of a, a, a new experience for someone who had not uh, really lived or been in the South a whole lot. But it's been for a music writer, for someone who loves music and the history of music, it's obviously been a really amazing place to uh, to make a life and a career. Now, was it the history of the city and its place in American music that drew you there, or what was it that brought you to Memphis? In part, I mean, it was an opportunity to be a, a music critic at a, at a daily paper where, as I say, it's uh, music is not a disposable arts beat. It's it's so woven into the fabric of the city and the civic identity and, and everything else that, uh, for me, it just seemed like a really incredible opportunity. And plus, you know, I'm really interested in the in the legacy uh, of music, the history of music, and, and maybe some of the both the known things, you know, Elvis and Stax and so forth, and the lesser-known aspects uh, of Memphis and Southern musical history, which, you know, it's, it's a really uh, rich uh, environment here for that. Now, uh, in terms of the lesser-known aspects of Memphis, is there anything that you'd like to highlight? Is there anything that oh, you're like... Well, you know, I mean, there's so many labels, so many characters. I mean, you, you, there's always a kind of a flip side uh, to everything. I mean, everybody knows Sun, but maybe they don't know the history of, of uh, Sun Studios, but maybe they don't know the history of Phillips Studio, which is the studio that Sam Phillips uh, established and built afterwards, which is actually kind of enjoying a, a new renaissance here uh, recently. has uh, kind of been returned to its uh, former glory, and they're doing more and more projects out of there, or whether it's researching labels, again, kind of the flip side of, of known labels like High and Stax, um, is labels like Goldwax and, and companies like uh, XL and, uh, and and so forth. So there's always, and you know, even there's even a really interesting uh, compilation that's come out, a guy named Style Wooten, that Fat Possum, which is a you know world famous blues label down in Mississippi, not far from here, uh, has collected uh, these kind of private press gospel recordings that were done in Memphis. So there's always you know, more history that uh, the history is all around, but there's more new history being uncovered and discovered uh, uh, these days here in Memphis. That's that's really fascinating as well. 
Yeah, a few months ago, I was very fortunate to have Peter Goralnik on the show to talk about his uh, new book about Sam Phillips. Did you have a chance to read that or cover that in any way? Oh, yes, and I know Peter very well, and uh, actually he was just at, I did a reading in Nashville, and, and he came out, uh, he teaches at uh, at Vanderbilt uh, in the uh, in the Springs before he has to go back to Massachusetts, so um, I did uh, actually uh, interview him for uh, for an appearance he did to launch the book, and and you know he's been working on that for really almost half a, half a lifetime you know, from the first moment he met Sam in I think late seventies or early eighties and uh, and uh, he's been talking about doing the book for the last decade or so and and, and been working on it actively and it's a really it fills in a lot of important uh, blanks in in the Sam story and the Philip story and, and and Memphis's story as well so that's a it's a, it's a big book and a very important book I think uh, uh, for those of us who really appreciate. Uh, Peter's ability to get to the core of, of, of Memphis musical history. Yeah, it's a, just the fortitude of, I mean, I, I don't know that Sam exemplifies everyone down there, but my goodness, that it just, what, a, what a, I, I, encur- I've, I did this before, I encourage everyone to read that book just to learn more about, you know, the human Sam spirit, is, really. is kind of the ghost in the machine, you know, he's the spiritual, uh, he's the spirit that carries on, you know, he's been gone a dozen years or so, but his... Uh, initial inspiration and his kind of philosophies I think inform have always informed and continue to inform so much of what's good about Memphis music yeah no and that comes across in that book I'm glad you have this relationship with Peter as well did you happen to know Sam I did not know Sam I met him once but he had already passed by the time I moved here Uh, I am very close actually with his sons uh, Knox and Jerry and now his granddaughter Hallie who has kind of uh, taken over the the family business so to speak and and is uh been doing great work with the studio um, and you know, fixing it up a bit and making it more of an active recording hub. So, uh, you know, there's uh, the second and third generation of Phillipses are carrying on the, the family tradition. So is Memphis a, a city small enough where if you're involved in music in some capacity, you're likely to know everyone else who's doing pretty, the same? Pretty, pretty much. I mean, in my position, certainly I am, but I think generally... Um, People do tend to cross paths. I mean, it's not a small city in terms of population or land mass. I mean, it's a million and a half uh, when you count the suburbs, and it's actually a pretty sort of uh, big city physically. But uh, but when you're in this business or you're sort of around, you you do tend to run into people. Um, you know, uh, kind of historical figures tend to sort of uh, emerge before your eyes. I had a friend in here from New York yesterday, and I had uh, left some passes for him to visit the Stax Museum, and he told me as they were coming in to get their passes and go into the museum, Carla Thomas, you know, the queen of stacks was, was walking out. So it's like, uh, the, the history is, is, uh, very real here and living. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to segue from Memphis to, I guess, Minneapolis, really. Um, maybe, maybe just up the Mississippi river. Exactly. Uh, I'm curious, first of all about, well, first of all, congratulations on this book, on your own book. We talked about Peter's book, but come on. Your book about the replacements is astounding, and I, I know that it, it clearly was a lot of work. So, I, I, how are you feeling about Thank it you. now that it's finally available? Good. It's been, um, you know, uh, as I told my editor I, when he asked how long it would take, I said, oh, "I'll take a year to research and a year to write." And uh, as the saying goes, "Man makes plans and God laughs." It ended up taking not two years, but seven and a half, almost eight years right. to uh, to do from start to finish. And so, when you get sort of so deeply involved in something like that there's points i'm sure you think it's never going to come out or it passes from uh, into this kind of weird uh, ethereal sort of concept uh, but to have it out now and we've been getting really good reaction and the sales have been really incredible we're into our third printing 
um, it's been really gratifying, and to see it sort of made real is, is, has been a wonderful thing. Now, what is your own personal relationship to the music of The Replacements? Well, I, in a way, I saw The Replacements before I ever heard them. My first exposure, probably like a lot of people, was on their uh, first national television appearance on Saturday Night Live uh, in 1986, January of 86. I was not aware of the band. I was about 11 years old at the time, and I just happened to be watching Saturday Night Live that night and saw this band introduced and come on, and I recall sort of distinctly the feeling uh, of seeing them and how, what they were performing, how they were performing, and the kind of disregard they had almost for the stage and the moment. There was a sort of... Um, devil-may-care attitude and insouciance, whatever, that just jumped off the TV screen and right through it. Uh, and as a as a kid who, you know, probably at that point, and this is the middle 80s, there wasn't a ton of live rock and roll, certainly none with quite the rough edges that, that this band had. And uh, to see them sort of just explode onto this stage playing loud and loose and rough and everything else was... Uh, was a shock to the system in a way. And so it would be another, uh, so as I filed that away and then another year or so I got into uh, please to meet me, which was their, their record. And it came out in 1987. I think it was probably 88 by the time I found it. So my preteen years, and that was a perfect sort of soundtrack, uh, for that uh, early teen years. And, uh, so at that point, you know, I became a fan. And, and as I say, there's, uh, generally no such thing as a casual replacements fan it's generally a, a pretty hardcore love affair for most people when they discover their music and i was definitely in that camp and then um as as time went on and i became a professional critic i i, I uh, an interviewer i had the opportunity to speak to uh, paul westerberg and tommy stinson and various other members of the band and sort of got to know some of the their intimates and the people that were involved in their career over time and uh and so I sort of felt myself being pulled towards the project, ultimately. Now you were saying that there's kind of no in-between for Replacements fans. That, yeah. that SNL appearance is infamous. It's notorious. It, it is very divisive for some people. I mean, ultimately, the, the folklore was they had been banned from SNL after that right. appearance, right? Yeah, and that's, I mean, it, it, that's mostly true. Certainly, there was a tremendous blowback from both their appearance, which when you go back and look at it, actually it just is a great rock and roll performance. But the, as I explain in the book, and, and the SNL appearance represents a whole chapter in the book, um, there was a lot going on in terms of mitigating circumstances with the show itself uh, that made it a, a bit of a, a minefield for the replacements to go on. The show was really a kind of a, a low point. Uh, Lorne Michaels had just come back after a four-year or five-year absence from the show and was... Um, in some sense, the, the show was on the verge of being canceled, uh, particularly at that point when they came on in January. The, the, there was intimations made by the, the uh, network heads that, you know, it, it, Saturday Night Live was not long for this world. And here come the replacements walking into a very tense situation and just yeah. being themselves. And um, so I think the reaction was maybe an overreaction given the circumstances, because when you watch it, they really don't do anything. I mean, Paul does sort of in passing uh, with his head moving away from the mic. Uh, make a bit of a uh, uh, curse. <laughs> he cursed uh, off mic, so to speak, and, and it went to, it, it slipped past the censors. So, um, you know, that caused uh, everybody to get up their backs up and then they had redecorated the dressing room as was their want. So, uh, you know, there was just a, a, a tense and intense atmosphere that they walked into. And, and typically if there was gasoline on the floor, the replacements were often off in the match that set things alight. 
Well, one of the biggest weapons in their arsenal, and I don't even know if they were aware of it as a band, but one of the things that seemed to threaten particularly industry folks, whatever industry, TV, music, they seemed so indifferent to external perceptions mm-hmm. about anything, really. And I, when you watch the SNL appearance, even when you watch, I mean, Paul ends up going back uh, in something like 93, I believe, yep. right, to do. And and even then, there's like Paul, you know, in the replacement performance, he's kind of on and off the mic. Right. He's not really singing all the words. And there's like a chuckle in his solo appearance when there's a, a cue there's just this kind of like this is ridiculous kind of acknowledgement that this what they're doing is sort of silly and i think that professional supposedly professional industry people are really threatened by that absolutely and you know a an industry person the industry as a as a larger sort of entity uh, these are the things saturday night live major label contracts the promise of fame and fortune these are the only carrots they have to dangle uh for artists and when an artist is as you say indifferent or uh outright contemptuous of those things, then their power is eliminated. And I think that is unsettling too, would be to anybody, but particularly you know, an industry that in some ways is built on the idea that bands, uh, certainly at that time, are willing to do almost anything and everything for, for that success. And when the replacements sort of treated those opportunities and treated the the industry as a whole in that way, I think it was unsettling. And, and you know, that was balanced by their brilliance and their wonderful songs and the fact that uh, if you caught them on the right night, um, everybody at the company, everybody at the label saw their potential, saw their magic and, and sort of fell in love a little bit and, and became believers. Um, so it was this, this thing of these tremendous swings and roundabouts, I guess, uh, in terms yeah. of, of, of the label and the industry sort of believing in the replacements and wanting to, to go to bat for them and the replacements sort of uh, pushing them away. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the SNL appearance was uh, sparked some interest for you. You started to pick up the records. You started to talk to them over the years. Mm. What did you really know about the replacements as people before you began researching this book? Well, I think mostly I knew what everybody else did, which was the legend that were the myths. Um, and it's an interesting thing in doing this book. You, you sort of assume that all these wild stories, these anecdotes had to be exaggerated. And what I found was while there were some distortions and exaggerations about the things they did, um, most of the myths, especially the craziest ones, turned out to be true. Um, but for me, I the question that I suppose I always wanted answered and, and, and never quite got in any other you know, they'd been written about ad nauseum over the years and had been the subject of a chapter in Michael Azarod's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life, and a subject of an oral history before mine. But I always felt like th- this understanding of the replacements was really just anecdotal. They did this, they did that, they did this wild, crazy thing, they did that wild, crazy thing, which is all fine and good and, and entertaining. But for me, it was always, well, why? Why are they doing these things? Um, why did they do these things? And that was the question that was never answered. So in a sense, I suppose that became my mission, uh, was to find out why. What was behind this behavior? What, were, what was behind this great music? What, were, what was behind the intensity and emotions of these songs? And, and ultimately, what was behind uh, the story of their career and lives and how it all played out? And as I was to find out, there was a lot of deep and, and dark stuff that had never really been sort of brought to light. Yeah, they have this endearing reputation as a wild drunk. Like they were just drunk, high screw-ups. And and as you say, few people seem to know exactly how painful their lives were. I mean, the first few chapters about Bob Stinson's childhood are just hair, just heartbreaking. I mean, I almost wept. I, I was so happy. I, I You know, I read at night. 
I was in my bed and I was going to read. I was like, The Replacements, this is going to be fun. And then I was almost crying myself to sleep reading about Bob. How would you describe the the formative years of their lives? Is it possible for you to describe what I'm discussing sure. well, right now? Sure. Well, in the case of the Stinson family, and the band basically is uh, the Stinson brothers, uh, Bob Stinson, Tommy Stinson, uh, the drummer, Chris Mars, and then Paul Westerberg. And Chris and the Stinsons had sort of been playing in a group for a couple of years before Paul came along. And then their, their linkage is where the replacements really begins. Um, but... I felt like, you know, that that was a really fascinating that's the point where the story starts for most people, you know, when when the replacements as they were came together. But to me the story was so much about what had happened leading up to their meeting and uh, much of that had to do with very rough, unsettled and and in some ways very bleak childhoods, particularly with the Stinsons. Um Bob was the uh, subject of a good deal of abuse, uh, physical, sexual, emotional over the years um and escaping that um, the family uh, returned to Minneapolis where they were from when, during Bob's teenage years. And in a sense, his reaction to the uh, years of trauma, childhood trauma, was to kind of run away and get in trouble and thus began a uh, many-year odyssey in the state juvenile system, juvenile jails, uh, group homes. Yeah. Yeah. And in a sense, that's where the replacement story begins, is Bob trying to reconnect with the world and trying to reconnect with himself and and out of this come out of this trauma through music and through the guitar and, and studying the guitar in almost microscopic ways and then once he's out he sees his younger brother Tommy um, kind of going down a, a similar road although Tommy was spared uh, the actual physical abuse he was subject to that environment and Tommy was uh, you know reacting as 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 children do he was stealing he was getting in trouble with the law he was on the verge of being sent away uh, to a to a you know boys reform school out of state and Bob at that point sort of stepped in in a, in a really kind of heroic way I think for somebody who had been through so much he he had enough awareness to say I'm not going to let my younger brother go down this road and he basically forced the bass into his hands and said you're going to play bass and you're going to play bass in my band that he was putting together at that point and it really changed. Uh, changed their lives at that point, uh, Tommy being about that 11 or 12 years old when that when that happened. Um, and then Chris Mars comes along, who uh, in his own way, had uh, he had an older brother who was a severe schizophrenic in the 1960s when that was not spoken about or understood. And so he had, uh, I think, some lingering damage from that. So you're talking about damaged people. And Paul, in his own way, was... Um, Westerberg was in his own way the subject of a, a kind of alcoholic and, and uh, depressive household uh, and was looking. He had quit high school. As Paul says, there wasn't a high school diploma or a driver's license between them. These were kids with yeah. not a lot of prospects, not a lot of opportunities, uh, and they found a kind of salvation in, in rock and roll and in this band. So all of that fed so much into who and what the replacements were and what they became. I mean, you essentially frame Trouble Boys with the death and funeral of Bob Stinson, and you've kind of outlined why you might have done that, but is there a particular reason why that seemed like a point to begin? And essentially, I mean, the book goes on, obviously, sure. after his death, as the well as the other members did stuff. But why? 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 I mean, I, I don't know if it's implicit, but I got the impression that you're like, Bob is kind of, the, they're Paul songs... Bob was really the heart of the band on some level, but is that he, is that accurate? Yeah, he was the heart of the band, and also I think, listen, Paul was not a songwriter in the sense he had written a few. He had been mostly a guitar player and had written a couple of tunes before he joined the Replacements. 
I think in the chemistry, and that chemistry was uh, very much born out of a desperation, a shared desperation between Bob and Paul. Uh, They had their own reasons for wanting this band to work and for wanting to sort of transcend what had been fairly unhappy beginnings. Um, Their chemistry, I think, uh, sort of spurred Paul on. A lot of Paul's songs, a lot of his inspiration came from Bob and from the Stinsons and from the environment that he saw. I mean, Paul was in some ways an observer and channeled their, as he put it, delinquent energy into this music. So I think Bob's spirit was was the thing in many ways that guided the bands and guided Paul's songs. Um, so he, even after he was gone, I think so much of what they did was a reaction to his absence and then later... Um, it almost became he he almost became kind of as i say as i mentioned about sam phillips kind of the ghost in the machine of the replacements even when he wasn't there so much of what uh, he was his spirit guided the band um good and bad in, in some ways and so i think to me in terms of opening the book uh, opening a narrative with a funeral which is probably in some ways a, a risky um narrative choice uh it just seemed like the only thing anything else would have felt like a false construct to, to begin anywhere else. I mean, I could have started with them triumphing on stage during their recent reunion, or I could have started uh, with them at the end of the band, breaking up on stage more or less in 1991. But it felt like all those moments paled in comparison uh, in terms of significance and and um, heart uh, to to this moment where what was really the first replacements reunion uh, happened at Bob's funeral. And, and so it's sort yeah, of like that yeah. was the moment where, uh, where it, it had to begin for me and, and in some ways end, but you know, out of that ending is, is sort of the beginning of the book. It's interesting to me that, I mean, Bob's involvement in the band starts to peter out while they're making their album, Tim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then he's not on the next record, which you say was the first one you picked up. Please to meet me. Right. Do you think the band, I mean, I don't know how it's, it's kind of hard to argue otherwise. Do you think that when Bob left the band, they were kind of a diminished entity? They had some great success on some level, but did they seem like the same band? They had actually in some ways commercially greater success, um, you know, afterwards, although I think the records with Bob, the first four records are generally more fondly remembered. Uh, Although Tim, even though he's sort of on that in, in bits and pieces, is maybe considered their best work along with let it be which he's on um i think what happened and and part of it had to do with why bob had to leave is there was an evolution going on in terms of priorities personal and professional priorities and also uh, creativity musically i think um, bob was someone who ultimately because of the things he'd been through i think he had a limited capacity for the business as it were um, he was not one to sit with label heads or attorneys or do interviews. And so in a sense, he became marginalized as the power within the band naturally kind of consolidated with Paul and ultimately Tommy, who kind of stepped into a uh, a role as, as the soul of the band, if you will, at that point. Um, and so I think, in a sense, uh, when Bob began to feel that way, that he this thing that had been his band had slowly been taken away from him and and he became more uncomfortable with the responsibilities that were then by the time of their major label career the responsibilities that were associated with being a replacement and in the replacements I think it was inevitable that a choice had to be made in terms of whether he was going to continue on with the band and and of course things came to a fairly ugly head because these were people that were not emotionally equipped to deal with um, 
the things that Bob was going through physically and mentally at that point. I mean, basically, he had a kind of schizophrenic break uh, around the time of uh, Tim's release. And, uh, or, uh, and, and I mean, and, and I want to just clarify that, you know, often we, we've talked about how you frame the book around uh, Bob's death. And on some level, when a musician, an artist passes away, they, they become slightly uh, martyred. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, there's a, a, a tendency to saint them. Bob was a violent guy. Uh, he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of substance abuse issues. I'm not, this is not to condemn him, but yeah. he was very difficult to deal with. And I, it, it's not like a case where they let go of someone and then they went through a spiral. He was already kind of spiraling and they couldn't really function as a band with him, right? Well, and, and the truth of the matter is probably uh, all three of them, are certainly Paul and Tommy, I mean, you would describe them as alcoholics as well. So they were in no shape themselves um, to you know, step back and, and kind of deal with this. And, and and there's all the varying, various other factors. I mean, they switched management at that point, And so management wasn't at a, a solidified enough position to kind of deal with it or didn't really understand the depth of Bob's problems. So everything kind of just came to this um, really unfortunate head during that last, the, the cycle, album cycle for Tim uh, and, and ultimately Bob's uh, firing in, in, in the uh, late summer of 86. And really Paul wanted to just quit the band at that point. Uh, he said, "I'd rather than fire Bob because I think they understand the emotional weight of that and 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 the sort of owner's responsibility of having to fire a guy from his own band and how much the band meant to Bob." But really, the right it also speaks to yeah. it speaks to Bob's ownership on the band as well, right? Really. And, but they they couldn't at that point carry on, and in some ways, I think Bob was relieved, and in 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 some ways, the pressure had gotten too much for him being in the replacements and, and all the responsibility he was, the things, the expectations that were on him. Um, you yeah. know, he, he just preferred to have been a, a big fish in a small pond and not leave Minneapolis. And I think that had a lot to do with his own sort of demons and, and his own comfort in, in, in himself, um, because certainly musically he, he was capable of doing anything. But um, so, you know, there comes a point where where Paul wants to quit the group and uh, and and Chris and Tommy say, well, if you quit, who are you going to play bass with? Who are you going to play drums with? So they decide to carry on and they have to sort of dismiss Bob. And it really came down to Tommy's decision. And, and if you can imagine, you know, your brother puts this bass in your hands and gives you this life and there's blood ties and family and all this sort of uh, heavy emotional uh, content going on in that decision. And Tommy basically decided at that point that, you know, the band was worth saving. Um, and so they moved on without Bob. Of course, that was probably a pretty devastating emotional decision for him. And I think it lingered between Tommy and, and Bob until Bob's death. So, um, so, you know, it's much more than just the typical band decision here. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of heavy history, personal and, and, and uh, stuff going on in, in all these decisions for the replacements, which, you know, from a distance, I don't know that, that most people would perceive that about them because they did have this uh, reputation as, as you say, kind of fun loving and this is going to be a fun read. But uh, there was a lot of uh, difficult, uh, difficult stuff going on in, in their story and consequently in the book. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine anything making any of the members laugh more than me saying what I'm about to say, which is the book, the story of the band is vaguely Shakespearean. Huh. It's like weird family stuff going on and self-destruction and there's all these like sort of subplots. It's very weird. Well, and you know, when I when I was done with the book, I think I realized, you know, I thought when I started, I was going to, I had a sense of some of this. Instinctively, I knew there had to be more to the story than what had been presented and probably it was going to be um, difficult and, and, and dark matter uh, 
But of course, I didn't realize quite how tragic, quite how Shakespearean the whole story was going to be at the outset. Um, And when I was done with it, I realized, you know, I'd written kind of uh, fundamentally, it's, it's, it's two different stories. It's a story about damaged American families uh, and the kids that come out of that and, and how they deal with it. And in this case, it's how rock and roll can kind of become a salvation. It can save you, but only up to a point. At some point, the, the damage catches up with you, and it certainly did with, with Bob, and I think it did with Paul ultimately in terms of his drinking, and, and so everybody has to deal with that. That reckoning comes at a certain point. And, and the, other, the other part of it is it is a book about brotherhoods. Uh, it's about the blood brotherhood between... Tommy and Bob. It's about the larger brotherhood of the band itself. Uh, and, and it's about the brotherhood between Paul and Tommy, which is the thing that survives uh, the death of the band in a way and, and continues uh, even to this day. So, um, you know, it's, <laughs> I guess it, to me, it's, it's, it's less of a book about a rock and roll band than, than this group of human beings who happen to play rock and roll music. You mentioned that there had to be a reckoning at some point. Do you feel that we as fans, as observers, have we over-romanticized their stance as losers? I think they did that themselves to a certain extent. I think Tommy talks about it. He says we bought into that lovable losers myth too early. And it was, uh, you know, it was it was a shield for them. They used it as a kind of defense mechanism. Certainly Paul did. Uh, I think there's a lot of things in his psychology that play into that decision uh, to say, you know, you can look at uh, the very first article um, Paul talks about, you know, describing their music. This was like in 1980, early 1980, they'd been playing a handful of gigs, and he's already characterizing them in that way as lovable losers, as, as you know, we want to be a, a stars without being professional, like a big cult. You know, that's within a few weeks of the band. He almost predicted their their fate and their future, and I think a lot of that, either consciously or subconsciously, he was directing um, he's a very smart guy, a very instinctive guy, and I think part of that comes out of fear. I mean, you, you can read that through and through in the book. So much of what they did or what they didn't do was based on their fears. And I think Paul's fear fundamentally, which Tommy articulates, is that he was far more comfortable saying, I can't do this or I won't do this than actually try to do it and be rejected. Um yeah. Yeah. And so that's and I think, you know, that's about ego and that's about the fragility of ego that probably is common in in people who have alcoholic backgrounds and who are alcoholics themselves. This with with Paul and I think with the band, as you read in the book, there were these great swings of tremendous ego on one hand and tremendous insecurity on the other. And and that's sort of that's a kind of royal of (laughs) emotions and states of being. And I think that that contributed tremendously to, you know, why their career went the way it did. Yeah. Was there any way this wasn't going to be a sobering look at how much their attitudes and lifestyles cost the replacements? Because you you kind of figure out, you, you're going through all of this material and you realize the story you have. I mean, there's a lot, you were also very careful not to sensationalize any of the sex, drugs, mm. and rock and roll, but it's still a, a compelling read. It doesn't seem like a lecture, uh, so to speak. It doesn't seem scolding. Okay. But was there any way it wasn't going to be this sobering look at what happened? I mean, I suppose I could have shaded things a bit differently, but fundamentally it's it's hard given their beginnings, given Bob's beginnings. If you're going to talk about that in any way honestly and, and, and genuinely in terms of its impact, um, it was always going to be fairly sobering. And, and 
partly because so much of their myth and and so much of the band is wrapped in this romance. I think that's why I wanted to do it. I mean, I guess I'm interested in the idea of myth and romance in terms of rock and roll. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the replacements have always remained cool, uh, you know, for successive generations of listeners, in part because they do sort of fit into that um, kind of American idea of the beautiful loser. They never quite made it. And so that's kind of kept them pure and attractive in that way for, uh, for, for certain, you know, audiences to sort of embrace, you know, if they'd have had that one hit wonder sort of status, I think their, their, the cool factor would have been diminished and the romance would have been diminished, but you know, they, they, they sort of, they tried and they lost and, and, and we love that here, I think, or certain kinds of rock and roll fans love that idea. Uh, so there's that. And then also, you know, just the, the bigger picture for me was that, I, I, you know, the, the, so much of, again, it goes back to the question of why. It's like, yes, the things they did make for great stories. They make for great anecdotes. There's hopefully a lot of laughs in the book, but as a kind of, uh, I suppose, a dark humor when you know what's sort of uh, underneath the surface. Um but you know they're they're funny guys. They had good times in the midst of all that. It was there is almost something of um, a kind of the the way they lived their life. Certainly early on and and even all through, there was a, a sense of we're doomed or we're doomed from from the cradle in a sense. So we're going to enjoy ourselves and we're going to do what we want, uh, unencumbered by the rules and regulations and expectations of, of this business that we've entered in. So I think there is there is that kind of, uh, that that sort of weird sort of paradox there that, yes, it's a dark story, but it's also a thrilling one. It's also a funny one. It's also one that uh, that takes you to sort of unexpected places and and. and hopefully makes you laugh out loud as well as makes you cry. I mean, that's my hope because that's what the experience was like. I, you know, my whole aim was to make it as true to the experience as possible. Now, maybe I think if I, you know, and a writer should probably never say this, if, if I failed in some way, it was maybe that I didn't quite convey the good times and the humor as much. But some of those things are hard to translate 30 years later. What was funny in the van, uh, you know, on the road, doesn't quite translate to the page as well, but I hope hmm. I gave a sense of the camaraderie they had and and the and the spirit they had uh, on stage and off to some extent. But you know, the reality was that it's a tragic story in a lot of ways. Look, there were six people that that played in the replacements. Two of them are dead. One of them is is basically you know in a, in in a, in a in a bad state physically, uh, and Chris Mars is has moved on from the replacements. So the replacements at this point is Paul and Tommy and, and all the ravages of their relationship and all the things they've gone through. So to me, it's, you know, it's hard to, it, it's hard to get around that. I don't know that it could have been that much less of a sobering read. No, no. I mean, I, at various points while reading the book, I was thinking about someone completely new to the band reading it and being struck mm-hmm. by how much of like just the sheer nihilism of their actions as a band. Like, Completely self-saboteurs. They alienated everyone, friend, foe, benefactor, producer, TV network. It didn't matter. They seemed mm. to revel in being dicks. And Well, they were democratic in that, at least. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No one was, everyone was uh, fair game. It, do you feel that their behavior and their inability to take most things seriously stems entirely from the pain that they went through as kids? Was there something else going on? Because they were very insular when they got together. They realized they were a gang. 
is that it? Like they just it was us against the world from the get go. It seemed that that's certainly one part of it. Also, it has a lot to do with um, background environment. These guys were all you know Midwesterners, Catholics uh, from mostly blue collar families, mostly alcoholic backgrounds. Communication in the sense that we think of in the modern way of expressing feelings and and having uh, you know thoughts expressed between each other. I mean, they, they there was almost no communication you know open communication between them so much happened uh, through passive aggressive actions or um that's how they dealt with the world they weren't they weren't great sort of communicators within the band or outside of the band and so i think um some of that stems from that some of it is like i say that they came from this place and this environment i mean look at paul he's a guy whose father was sort of survived the aftermath of D-Day wading through the beach and walking amongst the bodies on the water and he never talked about yeah, it ever. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of Midwestern stoicism, I suppose, that's in effect. Uh, as, as, and, and in a way, Paul, I think, um, I think he says it in the book. He says, you know, I, I, I kept my relationships light and mind all my feelings for the songs. I think part of why their music was so great and why his songs were so great is because he was not as open maybe as a person at, at that time anyway. And and all that got channeled into the music and into the lyrics and into the songs. And I think that's why people connected so deeply and so profoundly with the material. And, you know, so that was a kind of sacrifice I suppose he made consciously or not. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's hard to say when you look at it. I mean, I think fundamentally, and I draw the comparison to say R.E.M., who they were contemporaries of and competitors with in, yeah. uh, for many years – and REM, you know, when it came to the business of, of music, they had a there was a point where REM said, okay, we're going to sit down and have a meeting and talk about what it is we're going to do, what we're willing to do, what kind of career we foresee for ourselves. And they sort of cleared the air and, and basically. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Had an understanding amongst the four of them what what they were going to do, and I think that benefited them. And conversely, the replacements never had that conversation. Right. Uh, and I don't think Paul knew what he wanted in terms of of a career and and what he was willing to do for that. And so it, it was always this unspoken struggle. I mean, the story of the replacements' career is is all the is this unspoken struggle of of what it is they want and what it is they're really willing to do and. Sometimes they would do it and then push the people away and or sometimes do it and then regret it instantly. And so um, they were very fragile people. And I think you see that for a band that in a way was discovered, you know, by Peter Jesperson, their manager and twin tone mm-hmm. label mm-hmm. benefactor. I mean, when they when he discovered them and heard their demo tape, they had played a handful of shows, most of which they'd been thrown out of at that point uh, for either being too loud or being too drunk. 
and happenstance, you know, Peter heard the tape, loved them, signed them. And from that point on, their career was a complete upward trajectory. And at any point when they suffered a setback, uh, whether it was the first time they went to Europe where they weren't as you know, well-received as they were in the States, or later when they went and opened for Tom Petty and, and, and the reception was lukewarm at best. It was devastating to them. Their, their, their emotional makeup was so delicate. They were so fragile, I think, um, from ultimately going back to the experiences they'd had as, as kids uh, that I think it, 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 it was a case of then the behavior became the way to express all that and the outlaid, outlandish antics became the way to express all that. And I actually... You say nihilism, and I, you know, it's hard to disagree with that. But sometimes these nihilistic acts, these weird ritualistic things that they did that were seemingly negative, were in their own way uh, bonding rituals between them. Yeah, you know, Paul and Tommy burning their per diems. Uh, it seems, and that's one thing that people have brought up in the book, and you know, how they would sort of throw away their money, their per diem money. I mean, the way Paul describes it, he says, "We didn't even have." It wasn't like we were rich, like we had the money to burn, but we burned it anyway because it, it was me and Tommy and we have each other. We don't need the money. You know, it was it, symbolic. It doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense on a logical level. But for people who were emotionally stunted, who couldn't express themselves directly, that's how they express themselves through these strange and negative nihilistic acts. But that were actually sort of ritualistic expressions of their brotherhood. Oh, totally. Like, I, I know why. I, I mean, I have a sense of why they would do such things. And it, <laughs> right. it, it really stems from them being, as I say, they, they were a unit and they knew it. And they seemed like they were at war with the world and, right. you know, and, and the rituals were just meant to be like, we're in this together. It's like short of a blood pact. I, maybe there was a blood pact. Who knows? <laughs> it's I, quite possible. I mean, it is a thing of, uh, I think Slim Dunlap, who's, the you know, Bob's replacement in the band at one point, they were sort of confronting this producer that they did not get along with. And he said, you know, are you with us or against us? You know, and, and I think that's kind of sim- symbolizes what the replacement's relationship with the business was. Are you with us or against us yeah. now? That doesn't mean they would welcome anybody. I think the, the replacement's whole sort of um, business model was to do outlandish things to negative things to push people away and whoever survived that whoever came back whoever was still standing at the end of all that stuff and it survived it that's who they ended up working with yeah now that's not the best way to manage a career necessarily but it does it does um show you that they were interested in people who really really loved them and that's who they ultimately ended up trusting and working with because the trust was a thing that they didn't give up easily yeah totally now you mentioned tonally you objectively can see how the book might seem more sober than fun in some ways. There are many legends in the lore of the replacements. Was there anything in particular that you were really eager to delve into or dispel? Well, one area or chapter in their history that was kind of unexplored was the making of Don't Tell a Soul, which was their uh, third major label album and technically their biggest seller, um, it's probably the least well-regarded of the, of their albums, in part because the mix for the record was handed off, and it sounds probably to some ears very dated or very fixed in 1988, 1989. Yeah. But um, they made two attempts at making that record. Uh, the second was with Matt Wallace, and that was what the released record was, was uh, made of. But they had done another session in Bearsville uh, in upstate New York, the famous studio complex there, and uh, worked with a guy named Tony Berg. And there had only been two tracks ever released from those sessions, and they came out you know, a decade after the sessions on a, on a uh, compilation, a rarities compilation. 
And uh, it was interesting to me that the replacements would have made this entire record once and really you only knew one or two tracks and really knew nothing about that. And um, so I, that was a, a kind of unexplored chapter in their history that, uh, that I wanted to get into. And, and for me, it was almost kind of a litmus test to write the book, even though it happens maybe three quarters of the way through their career. That's the first chapter I actually wrote. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, because it was like, okay, if I can, if I can tell this story in a way, because I th- one, I thought it was sort of representative of their experience, kind of butting against the music business and, and themselves, uh, contradicting themselves, fighting amongst themselves, and, and just at, at probably one of their darker moments when it should have been you know, one of the best moments for the band, um, where you see the pre- pressure ratchet up on them because there was a lot of expectations on that record. There was a big budget, and, and um, so I was like, okay, if I can convey that, moment in that session in a way that makes sense then i think i can write this book and so i did that first and um of course it's it's a great yarn them in the woods these uh, sort of city kids uh, in the in the woods of upstate new york and uh, they sort of came down with cabin fever uh, very quickly right. and were playing uh, dodgeball with kitchen knives uh, dodge knife as tommy put it and uh, and you know did everything from burning guitars in the studio to uh, fighting with the producer to scaring Metallica who were also at Bearsville recording. So it's sort of, uh, it had every element of the replacement story. And, and so that was like, you know, one big gap in their, in their history that I thought, okay, well, if I can, if I can do this, I can tell this story. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, it's that, that I'm glad you highlighted that because it just sort of <laughs> comes out of nowhere and there's so many weird things that went on in that chapter and that section. That's uh that's funny. You seem to have full access to everyone who might have orbited the band as an associate, friend, and family member. Obviously, every band member that was able to speak to you seems to have done so. That suggests the project was encouraged or approved by their camp. Was anything off limits for you? Did you pull material out of the book for any reason? No, and it's it's mostly true. Chris Mars uh, was kind of the least directly involved. I had done some interviews with him, but he's a very successful painter and artist, and I think in some ways has in many ways has moved on from the band and I think frankly you know his last few years in the band weren't the happiest and so there may be some lingering sort of feelings there but uh, I tried to convey his experience as fully and richly as, as anybody else and you know and I had that with Bob obviously Bob was uh, having died in 1995 was not around for me to talk to yeah. so uh, you have to that's like that's the biographer's job is to make the people that aren't you know don't, don't have direct access to just as uh, three-dimensional and, and, and fleshed out as anybody else that you do have access to so um, but yes Generally speaking, I had access to everybody and the band's archives at Twin Tone Records and then at Warner Brothers Records and studio tapes and receipts and all that stuff. You know, everything you could sort of look and and feed on. And even if it wasn't in in the book or didn't make it per se, it it sort of informed my understanding. In a sense, I was writing a history from scratch, I think. Um, And so all that stuff was important. Um, As far as you know, doing the book and with their participation, it's it's been sort of erroneously reported in a couple instances as authorized, which isn't quite true, although it's a bit of a uh, distinction without a difference. Um, they, I basically set out from the beginning to say, I want your involvement in this, particularly Paul and Tommy, who, you know, effectively represent the group yeah, officially yeah. at this point. Um, and I said, uh, you know, I pitched them and, and that was a whole process of a year or two just to get them to agree. And, um, Ultimately, my pitch was that, listen, I want your involvement because that's the only way to tell this story. Um, But it's my book to write. It's not going to be authorized. You're not going to have veto power. There won't be editorial control or anything like that. So, no, and I think as you read, um, 
there's there's very little that uh, is, I hope feels compromised. I mean, it pretty much gets into every kind of personal aspect and 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 and, and painful thing that in somebody's life that that you could that you could go to without any uh, you know compromise there. Uh, and it's not flattering. I mean, one of the things that Paul said basically at the point that he agreed to do the book was, well, if you're going to do this right, it's not going to make us look very good, and it won't be very flattering yeah. to us. And and uh, and I think he understood that from the outset. And and there, you know, to their credit, there at any point during the six, seven, eight years I worked on this, they could have said nah and had second thoughts and pulled the plug and stopped participating and done all that. But it, it's very much to their credit that they wanted the story out there and wanted it told honestly. And uh, and I think, you know, I won't say that I was any genius. I was persistent, and I think my timing was very good. I think by the time I approached them with this project, uh, enough time had passed since the breakup of the band in 91 and Bob's death in 95, and their own solo careers had sort of moved on from that immediate aftermath of the replacements where I think, you know, it cast a shadow over Paul's solo career and Tommy's uh post-replacements efforts, I think, you know, 20 years later, they were ready to reflect and grapple with the legacy of this thing they had created. Um, and so I think it was important for them to be honest about it. Otherwise, there was no point in doing it. Do you feel that there's some aspect within Paul and Tommy that that wanted you to try to tell their story as something of a cautionary tale? Hmm. I don't know that I've ever thought about it in that way. I think they're they're both blunt people, I suppose you'd say, in that they're, in as much as any person is, can be honest with themselves, uh, and I think now, you know, as guys in their, in Tommy's case, late 40s and Paul in his, his early to mid 50s, um, I think they have the capacity to reflect. I mean, look, this whole book initially got started in 2004 when I went to interview Paul face to face for the first time, and at that point he was maybe nine or 10 months removed from the passing of his own mm-hmm. father. And he was watching his young son at four or five, you know, growing up. And so I think, you know, being watching those cycles of life uh, made him reflective. Uh, and we had a really great interview and connected on a level uh, in terms of intimacy and, and openness and, and, and him being candid in a way that I had never experienced or seen in any other interviews. And I think fortunately that carried on when we went to do the book and, um, and so I don't know. I think he was at a point where he was reflective and maybe reflective of his regrets. And, you know, I don't know that uh, I don't know that he wanted a cautionary tale told, but I think he wanted the truth told. Yeah. And I think if it turns out to be a cautionary tale or, or just an expression of what this complete experience of being a replacement was, that was probably really the most important thing to him and to them. Um, but it's. You know, it's hard to say. I think I think ultimately he, both of them, wanted to deal with this stuff. I mean, they're, I mean, it's no secret it's in the book. I think they've both gone through therapy later in life, uh, and they've both, you know, dealt, done some sort of uh, work on themselves, as it were, and, and, and work getting through the things that uh, had dragged them down. And, and, and in Paul's case, uh, you know, he was self-medicating for many years until he was realized he was a, you know, actually had depression and, and went to see somebody and got on medication for that. So I think a lot of that behavior in those, those during those years, the replacements, you know, career and, and through his twenties was, was about that was about self-medicating. And, yeah. and, yeah. and Paul was such a dominant figure in the group that everything kind of fed off that or reacted to that. So I think now, yeah, I think this book in some ways and ultimately the reunion that they did between 2013 and 2015, it was all about dealing with these, these ghosts and these, um, issues and 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 with this thing that they had built and created 
Now, the band's legacy has been assured via their records, most of which are stunningly great. They've contributed to at least one other oral history that I can think of, the, the thing for Magnet a few years ago. Um, maybe- yeah, Tommy Tommy was involved in that, and and Paul had done some uh, done another interview. I mean, they, you know, th- their reluctance, I think, had to do a lot with just not you know the same reluctance they had with the with the industry. It was just they're not easily trusting people. They're very insular, and I think, given the subject matter of their lives or or, or what what turned out to be the subject matter of their lives, you could understand their reticence. I think absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I guess my point, you kind of spoke to this moments ago. I'm just curious what you hope your book contributes to their story, to the band, to the to the legacy of the replacements. What what is your hope here? My hope is, and I is that it does for others what it did for me, which is give me an even greater appreciation of what it was they did achieve, what it was that Bob Stinson, given all the tragedy of his life, was still able to do, in terms of creating this band, in terms of saving his brother, in terms of making this music that continues to resonate with people and hopefully will resonate with people long after I'm gone and, and everybody else is gone, you know, that, that they've created something permanent and lasting and important and done it by overcoming really tremendous obstacles, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, personally and emotionally and physically and, and all that stuff. So for me, the fact that they lasted 12 years in, in various forms and they put out eight amazing albums and that they survived, at least Paul and Tommy did, to, to do this kind of victory lap in 2013 and to see and uh, the re, with the reunion to see them playing baseball stadiums and tennis stadiums with 15,000 people singing back their songs to them yeah. in this kind of joyous communal sense and to know how much their music had meant and, and continues to mean to people. Um, you know, I, I've said it before, but it's like, you know, so much of the replacement story in their career was they fell short or they lost or they failed. But, I don't think that's the case right now when you look at it. I think their victory wasn't for that moment. Their victory was for all time. And I think uh, the way that they're regarded and their music is regarded and and the outpouring you saw during their reunion is proof of that. Now, I was at the Riot Fest show in Toronto. Were you there? Mm. I was there, actually. I I did go for that. It was pretty stunning, wasn't it? It was, and particularly for me at that point having been working on the book four or five years to suddenly be whisked from kind of this uh, uh, theoretical or whatever academic world, researching them and kind of trying to live their lives and write about what I thought was sort of a a subject that was in the past and to be whisked side stage to see the band kind of coming back to life in front of my eyes was amazing. And I went to several other shows and um, while I think the band might have been tighter or Paul's vocals might have been stronger, uh, you know, Toronto being the first show, I don't know that there could have been uh, more energy or more love or more excitement, you know, more positive energy than what I saw in Toronto. And I think they talked about that actually um, quite a bit at how the, the energy of the crowd and the moment sort of carried them through that, that you know, first show. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was, uh, there's nothing like that first time. And that was really, really amazing thing to see for me. And, and I'm sure to experience, uh, for everybody who was there. I mean, I've been to, I, I, I lost track, but I've been to, I think a billion concerts now and the collective spirit of that mm. moment is not something I'll ever forget. Like just the, the people look like they were possessed. The people I was around, <laughs> the people I right. was, I, myself included, we were just like, filled with something that I don't think you see anywhere. I've not seen it. I've really not, like short of, I don't know, 
whoever. <laughs> I don't want to cite yeah, anyone, no, but it's, it was really remarkable. It's, it's like uh, I don't know. It's like they had they had deposited this this money in the bank thirty years ago, and 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 it just kept growing or growing or a stock that kept growing and you know and they cashed it <laughs> with that reunion and they saw like oh, god look you know we we put this little bit of money in and and, and look at what 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 we've reaped now yeah. after all these years that's probably a bad analogy but i i you know there there just there had been so much compound interest on everything they had done you know uh and and you could feel it in, in that moment and throughout that reunion i think i think that was the the um that was the sense that most people had almost for almost every single show they did on that reunion was that same spirit and, and, and emotion uh, and just joy about uh, about seeing them and experiencing those songs and, and the, you know, the dynamic between Paul and Tommy and, and what they represent and what they represent in people's lives, which mm-hmm. is a, a no small thing. It's an interesting analogy you chose for a band that is known for literally burning money. <laughs> Burning money. I don't know. Maybe it's on my brain there. I'm trying to <laughs> trying to make up for their for their uh, uh, for their wastefulness. Yeah, exactly. Now they they essentially seem. The story is they broke up on stage in 2015. Paul made an announcement on stage in Europe. Do you think they'll be back? Well, as I tell everyone, Paul. You know, they were in, on stage in Portugal. The, the the reunion was probably originally planned to be three shows, but. Obviously, the response for those Riot Fest shows was so great that they decided to do the lap uh, festivals the next year. And then they did a couple big headlining shows, as I say, in kind of sports arenas in Minneapolis and New York City. And then I think they decided, well, let's let's do some indoor shows here and, and, and do theater shows. Uh, and I think it just went on longer than anybody had expected. So by the time they got to Europe in Portugal, Paul made his now famous statement that sort of set the internet and social media light that this is our last show. Well, Paul has said this is our last show on stage with the replacements probably 50 times over the years, including uh, at CBGB's during their, you know, label showcase right before they got signed. So um, you can't, you can't take him at his word when he's, when he's in front of a mic on stage. I do think there's, it's certainly a, a a kind of pause, if not a full stop. Um, they've both gone on to other things. Paul's working on his uh, I Don't Care's project and some solo material, and Tommy's working on a solo album. But I, just as I thought the reunion was kind of inevitable because I knew the depth of their relationship, Paul and Tommy's relationship, so I felt like, you know, these two people can't not do something at some point. I still feel like that's there, and I think, um, you know, it would have made sense for them to do a record or do another tour, and I think there were some attempts made at recording, and for whatever reason, it didn't didn't work. And I think it's that's understandable. It's hard to revive a band as a going entity after yeah. 25 years. Um, but I don't think, you know, as I put it in the book, I, I say I hope this you know, their story goes on past these pages. Um, and I think there's a chance it will, but, you know, if, 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 if it ended and that was it, then I think... Uh, I think it's a, it's an okay way to end. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I assume you're busy with this book. Uh, do, are you doing like a book tour? Is there something coming? Is there any way you're coming been, to Canada or anything like that? Uh, I don't know about coming to Canada. I think I, the next round of things will be uh, an East Coast tour and a West Coast tour. Um, I've done a few things. I did Memphis. I did Minneapolis, of course, which we had like 300 people show up, so it was, which was pretty remarkable. Oh, congratulations! Talking about a book, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, and I've done Nashville and and you know some neighboring things. I'm going to fan out, do New York and and Philly and Boston, and then Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland here coming up. And then I think after that, I will uh, pursue other markets. And I'd love to come up to Toronto because I know that obviously they have a, a big fan base there, and certainly uh, 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 that Riot Fest show was testament of that. So. Um, 
yeah, basically, as I said, I committed seven, eight, almost 10 years to this book. So I'm definitely going to spend the rest of this year promoting it and getting it out there and, and, and trying to uh, get to everyone who should read it to, to know about it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you, you went to Minneapolis, which uh, it begs the question, have you received feedback from anyone involved in the band? Have you received feedback from people who are interviewed in the book? Like, what's what's the reception been like? Yeah, the reception's been pretty fantastic. Of course, you know, the thing I was most worried about was Tommy's family because, um, you know, particularly his sister and his mother and, and Bob's mother and sister, um, mm-hmm. you know, so much of that is personal. And in a way, they didn't sign up to be, you know, part of the story per se. You know, they they weren't in the band, but they were willing to um, kind of step up and tell their stories. And for me, that was... That was the thing I was most worried about is am I telling this their part of the story accurately, honestly, empathetically, you know, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, this is stuff they haven't uh, they never really even talked about it amongst each other. And here they are, um, you know, giving giving up the most personal stuff to us to a relative stranger. Uh, So there was a there was a huge burden for me in doing that in, 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 in. hearing their kind of testimony about these things that had happened in their lives and, and their regrets and everything else and, and, and to convey that in a way that was on the page that uh, was respectful and, and honest uh, was, was the biggest thing. And so, yes, I've had really good feedback from his sister and uh, I actually just received a letter from his mother that was really amazing. I'm just getting emotional just thinking about it, actually. Um, so, you know, it's a pretty... You know, you 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 want to do right by these people whose lives have been so affected mm-hmm. by this tragedy, and um, hopefully, I did that. And uh, as far as Tommy and Paul, you know, Tommy, I don't think I, I sent him part of the book, the first part of the book, after it was kind of written, because he was kind of concerned about some of the same things with the family and how that was handled, and 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 the early years of the band, and and he he said he found it inspiring. So I took that as a good sign. I don't know if he's for his own sort of sense of self if he can read all of it because it's still very much. Um, a difficult thing for him. I know Paul, <laughs> as is Paul's fashion, he, he wasn't going to read it, and I didn't think he was going to read it. And then at the eleventh hour, he decided he was going to read it um, in galley form. So I sent it to him and uh, sent it to him on a Saturday morning, and uh, he got it because I knew I had FedEx tracking there. And then about three a.m., I got a call from him, <laughs> which uh, it, you know comes up unidentified number, but I, I sort of knew which unidentified number that was, and I remember turning to my wife in bed and saying oh that that's probably not good but um (laughs) it it turned out to be all right i think he was as probably anybody would be uh you know book shows up on your doorstep and here is your life uh spread out across 500 pages and most of it really concerning your the years of your 20s which i don't know about you uh i certainly wouldn't want somebody delving into my 20s so deeply but um but we so we had some pretty healthy and interesting conversations about it and mostly he was because he is a really serious reader of biographies and history and, and as I say, an incredibly uh, smart guy. And so he, um, he just wanted to ask about certain choices I'd made and things that had happened. And he was very complimentary and, and caustic on the other hand, that's his way. And, uh, but we sort of walked away from that where, uh, everybody was sort of happy with everything. And I think more than anything, I, I you know, the truth is neither Paul or Tommy was ever going to be entirely happy with with the experience of the book, I think it's too raw. I think it's too real. I think it, it it cuts too deeply for that. But you know, they knew that, and I think they made a choice and a very brave choice to say, okay, this is what it is. But it wasn't going to be anything that they were going to celebrate. I think it was more a 
uh, something they felt they had to do. And no, I mean, so you're, I think, yeah, you're talking about people who don't communicate well with each other. <laughs> I mean, across the board, everyone involved, it seems, even the Stinson family, there are just certain things you won't express to someone that you know very well that you might to someone that you don't know at all. I find that as a journalist all the time, like I'm sure. essentially in a position where I'm mediating issues. That was never <laughs> my intention. It's just everyone's hearing an opinion from someone they spend 12 hours a day with for the first time through me. So right. I, I can understand your concern about... Uh, well, and, I, and I totally had that experience over the years. I mean, so much of it, I kind of became, I don't want to say an intermediary between Paul and Tommy, but certainly I became someone who was, uh, you know, they wanted to know what the other was saying about them and they were communicating things about their business and the reunion through me. And, uh, you know, like you say, when, when, when people don't communicate directly, people, other people become the sort of uh, buffers or translators of yeah. that or receptacles for that. Uh, and... You know, I, I, there was stuff that uh, Paul said, you know, when he talks about, uh, you know, having gotten the calls about Alex Chilton or Jim Dickinson or various people they'd work with mm-hmm. and them passing away. And he said in, in a moment of, of candor, he said, you know, I've had those calls, you know, these years. And, and I, the, the only call I think that would that I wouldn't recover from is if somebody said something happened to Tommy. And I know he's never said that to Tommy, but to hear him say that to me and, you know, to put it in the book, I mean, I think they were communicating with each yeah. other. And so that yeah. was part of the process as well, certainly. And in some ways, did you find yourself in your writing communicating with them directly? I tried as much as possible to sort of be the a kind of, um, dispassion is in the word, but let the story sort of tell itself. And, and, and I, except for a couple instances where it was sort of setting the record straight on things that had been kind of misreported extensively over time and, and, and uh, continually over the last 20 years, I, I really tried to let the story sort of do that. I mean, I suppose, you know, any anybody who's writing a book um, is going to interject some of himself into it, yeah, uh, yeah, even if it's just the way you're structuring it. And, and you know, I think I've learned something about myself. I, I mean, personally, I could not have a more different background than any of the, than these guys. You know, I'm I, I basically a immigrant who grew up in Los Angeles uh, with a family that was completely straight and normal and happy and loving going back several generations, you know, like completely mm-hmm. normal. So for to me, I think the advantage was that it almost became like a anthropological uh, study uh, for me because this was so alien to me, so foreign, both in terms of Minneapolis and the culture there and the dynamics of the families. And so I came with it to it that way with that kind of curiosity and without any sort of uh, ax to grind or, 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 or thing to in of myself to put into it. So really I I felt, and I hopefully if the book succeeds on that level, it's because I, I was treating it in a way of like, I have to learn about all this stuff. I was learning as I went along about all these dynamics and all these, um, you know, identities and, and regional and local and religious and family and all that sort of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I, I hope that's kind of, if I brought anything of myself to it, 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 it was that perspective. Yeah. Well, it's a remarkable feat and I can hear it in your voice. You're obviously still processing it. Uh, and and I and you've got at least it sounds like you've got a year planned to kind of tell people about it. What is actually next for you? Have you actually thought about what your next big project it might be? That's the question. That's the big question. I you know for me it's I, I guess it, 
more I'm thinking what it might not be. And it's like after telling this story, a story so rich on so many levels in terms of a of a subject that really hadn't been picked over, uh, of a subject that had that operates on so many levels, creatively, musically, the business, uh, this really deep personal level, the psychological aspects, addiction, all this, all the things that are in that replacement story, in addition to the great music, great anecdotes, um, I'm going to have a hard time following it up with another band book, I think, because I think almost anything is going to pale in comparison sure. to the uh, to the to the richness of this subject matter. Uh, so I, I, I think it's I only know that I'm probably not going to write another band book and I'll probably have to uh, step to the side or, or, or do something else uh, in terms of a, a narrative book, a biography of someone or something else that maybe isn't uh, isn't a rock and roll band. OK, but so I don't I mean, know. I don't know quite what that is yet. Yeah. I'm still sort of figuring it out. As you say, kind of the, this process was so long and so deep that it's uh, I'm still kind of pulling out of it. Yeah, I can I can totally understand that. Well, for those listening, again, Bob Mayer is the author of this riveting, surprising new book called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, which is out now via DeCapo Books. Ask your local bookstore or library to stock this book, please, and, and visit uh, decapopress.com or replacementsbook.com for more information about it. It really is remarkable. Um, now, normally, Bob, I have an artist on and I ask them to choose a song from mm. a record or something we're talking about. I'm going to throw caution to the wind and ask you, on behalf of the replacements <laughs> who hopefully will not litigate, to select a song that might be appropriate to go out on. Do you mind doing that? Sure. Uh, I guess, you know, I have so many songs that are favorites and so many that have new meaning to me uh, after doing this uh, this book. But... Um, I guess I'll go with a kind of standard and classic, which is probably considered one of their great anthems, and I think was the encore, um, or maybe the, the the final song in Toronto, and that's "Bastards of Young." I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of Paul in that, a lot of his experiences, a lot of the band in that, um, and so it's kind of uh, the replacement story in some ways, uh, and and one of my favorite songs, and it's you know I think it's an undeniable uh, uh, you know classic in his catalog. May I tell you a very brief personal story? Of course. My son is four years old. His name is Levon. And mm-hmm. since he's since he it was around two, oh, wait I a have second. Son- so now I have to I have to ask you. You're a Canadian and you you, you named your son after the only non Canadian member of the band? Yeah, that's just how I roll. <laughs> I'm a drummer. I you know, I don't want to be too heavy handed about it, like a heavy handed drummer. But <laughs> Levon as a Levon Helm as a person, I didn't care where he was from, but I was just very invested in his sensibility as a human being. He had a lot of grace within him and obviously a fantastic drummer and someone I I emulate and think of sometimes. But just the spirit of his character really always resonated with me. And I got to see him a few times. I agree totally. No, that's a great name. And my my wife's name is Michelle. I'm Vish. There's a little bit of LV. You understand. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) Levon. No, that's okay. Since he was around two, I've been singing songs to him every night, different songs. I have literally sung him Bastards of Young every night. He, I say, what do you want to hear tonight? For example, last night it was Yellow Submarine, To Make You Feel My Love by Bob Dylan, and always, always, always Bastards of Young by The Replacements. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's it's an interesting uh, choice. He's got he's got good taste. <laughs> he does have good taste, but it's just that. And I mean, we go through all the Tim's. Tim in particular is big for him. And we go through all the songs, but it's always weirdly this song. So I think it's weird and cool that you picked it, because obviously it's an anthem and a popular song for the fans of the band. 
and I, I'm happy to play it for people now. So why don't we go out on that? Bastards are young. And uh, Bob, this was a tremendous pleasure. I thank you for being on the show, and I wish you the best of luck with everything. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful conversation, and, and I really appreciate you, uh, you let me uh, yak at you.
One of my favorite songs ever from one of the best bands of all time, and from what some people consider to be their best album. That was the song Bastards of Young by The Replacements. That is from their 1985 album, Tim. And that is a wonderful song. I can't thank Bob Mayer enough for being on this program and being uh, so forthcoming with his time. And, and just, he's, he seems like a very swell guy. His book's incredible, Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. It's out now. Whether you're a, a longtime fan, whether you're, you know nothing about the band, this is a, a truly comprehensive document. You'll get it all, and wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Bob, once again for being on the show and being so helpful uh, in so many ways. Thank you so much for being on this program. And thanks to all of you uh, who are maybe new to the show and are Replacements fans. I'm a Replacements fan, so we bond. We bond over this band. I think that's fair to say. If you want to listen uh, to or download, that's very important. If you download episodes of this podcast, it's helpful. Download, stream, whatever you need to do. You can do what you want with the creative control of each kind of podcast over on iTunes, audioboom.com, and vishkana.com. In fact, if you go to vishkana.com, there's a podcast section and a lot of information about the show is there. Like you can learn that you can make a flexible monthly donation to the program to keep it going. Uh, over at patreon.com. Oh, there's a link on, the, as I say, on my website. There are also links to our Facebook page. Creative Control of Vishkana is on Facebook. We're on Twitter, at Creative. I'm on Twitter, at Vishkana. A version of the show airs every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time around the world at CFRU.ca. If you're in the Guelph, Ontario vicinity, you can listen to the show at the same day, at the same time, at, uh, on CFRU 93.3 FM in Guelph. So, check those things out I'm on my way to St. John's Newfoundland to do uh, a live version of my long night with Vishkana talk show this is happening Friday May 6th at the Rocket Room at 9pm I believe the time has shifted from 8 to 9pm and Lanya Vanya is great if you're coming to St. John's or if you've been there before you're going to be there come say hi that'll be fun and uh, yeah otherwise I believe the next episode of this program is going to feature a walk and talk with a band from Toronto called Several Futures uh, so stay tuned, or whatever. Keep up with the show, and you'll figure out when that is. I think it'll be this week, uh, as I'm in Newfoundland. You'll hear a thing. That's my plan. Anyway, that's it. Thanks again. I will talk to you soon. Bye for now.
That's enough of that to me. Sound like a guy who's on his way to getting a job at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.